Welcome to Psych Talk. I am your host, Jessica Lee, a licensed clinical psychologist. It is my mission to motivate, inspire, and educate you on everything psychology, mental health, and self-growth. Although topics discussed on this podcast are similar to therapy, Psych Talk is not a replacement for therapy and is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Whether you are a mental health professional or student in the social science field, are interested in psychology and mindset shifts, or are just interested in gaining skills and knowledge to grow into the best version of yourself, this podcast is for you. My hope is to provide you with knowledge and skills that you can implement in your daily life that add up to make a big impact. Let's dive into today's episode. Hey everyone, welcome back to Psych Talk, and thank you so much for joining for today's episode. Today, I have a very special guest with me, Dr. McKenna Herford, who is a licensed psychologist. So Dr. Mack, thank you so much for being here today. I am excited to be here to talk about this topic, which I don't get to talk about that much, honestly. I'm super excited as well. So before we dive in, can you introduce yourself a little bit about your background and what you do? Yes. So my name is Dr. McKenna Herford. If you are on my social media, you probably know me as Dr. Mack. I am a licensed psychologist like you are. I, on the clinical side, working with clients, doing therapy. I've worked with a lot of different populations. Right now, I specialize more with more complex kind of presentations coming in, meaning there could be medical things going on. There could be systemic things going on. There could be multiple mental health things going on. So I see a lot of chronic illness folks. Um, I see neurodivergent folks, queer folks, couples, slash partnered folks, and a lot of trauma and some characterological things. But then on the research side and consultation side, I have talked quite a bit about health and specifically mental health disparities. So that was actually what my entire dissertation was on, was basically calling out our entire field, which is very on brand for me. So it was a little spicy. And so, yeah, I built trainings from the ground up, like within the VA for psychiatry residents and psychiatrists. I do a lot of consultation on that. And of course, my research on this area. So I finally get to put a plug in on that side of my life. I love it. I love it. And it is very on brand with you. You know, you have the spicy Thursdays have had those going on social media for gosh, it has to be like well over a year. I think so. Yeah. Now. So yeah. Yeah. So I I love the call outs because I truly believe, and I feel like you would agree, but I don't want to make that assumption like anybody in any field, but especially the mental health field, we have to criticize the weaknesses of our field to make it better like just because we're criticizing it doesn't like obviously we wouldn't be in this field if we hated it but there in any field there's going to be weaknesses disparities things we don't like and there's not going to be change if those things aren't identified yes a hundred percent and i'm glad you brought that up because uh, if you have not done critical research, which is more on the qualitative side. And that is more of my experience. You're not understanding that you're getting maybe confused because people do tend to overly identify with whatever they participate in. It could be a sports team. It could be their job, Mm -hmm. whatever. And so political affiliation. And so 
if someone is critiquing that, you're usually, you know, meeting that with defensiveness. Whereas with the research side, yes, I'm holding our feet to the fire because I care, because mm-hmm. I have high expectations, and because we're really great at studying everyone else. But we really don't love studying our own field and how we're mm-hmm. doing with things. Absolutely. Absolutely. So probably unsurprising to anybody listening for the past four minutes as we've been talking today, we're going to be discussing mental health disparities. So the first thing I want to ask you, what made you interested in researching and then talking about mental health disparities? Yeah. So I grew up in Mississippi, despite me lacking an accent, as you may notice, although it it does come out a little bit when I'm angry and or intoxicated. And my family was not from the South. And so there was this constant culture clash for me growing up in the South and just seeing how obviously every ism that you can possibly imagine happening. And me, of course, accidentally falling into some of those traps myself. So I get into my master's program and one of my professors that I just adored. She's a developmental psychologist. And I needed to get some research experience. And I was really interested in what she was doing. I was kind of leaning more toward the correctional side of things on the therapy side. Mm -hmm. But I needed a research assistantship to get some money, uh, as we often do. She was studying infant mortality disparities. And so basically the differences in infant mortality, more specifically for black women in the United States and pulling apart and and just getting a whole cluster of research articles that had already been done where they had controlled for the typical things that people would assume like genetics or education or access to healthcare. And certainly a lot of those things can play a role, but even when they controlled for all of those different things, there were these enormous disparities in infant mortality and a lot of global organizations really describe how well a country is doing based on infant mortality. And we're horrible, horrible with that. I mean, you work with kids, you know, better than I do probably Uh, it's, it's awful, horrendous what the US does considering especially how how many resources that we do have available and so that really strong link between experiences of racism the chronic stress because of that and then also the direct treatment from medical professionals and mm-hmm. all of that kind of going together and this one piece that really stuck the nail in the coffin for me and really drove at home was them comparing first generation immigrant African mothers and their infants and their mortality, which was similar to Africa and didn't change that much, but then their kids immediately boom, already matched with the typical black moms in the United States. And so that was like a clear cut. Okay. Wow. It's saying something when the black mothers coming here from Africa had lower infant mortality rates than we would have expected it like match more with Africa. But as soon as Mm -hmm. their kiddos got old enough to have kids, that's when you start seeing those differences. And that just really impacted me. And so 
then that just became a really big piece. And so most of my research has been on the racial side. More recently, there is quite a bit more focus to at least keeping up with the research for queer folks and people that have chronic illness, like navigating mm-hmm. the healthcare and mental health care system. Wow. Thank you for sharing all that. And I probably said this when you were on previously, which I didn't mention before. So yes, Dr. Mack has been on Psych Talk before. (laughs) Um, And I'll make sure to link your episode in this episode's show notes. But it's always so interesting to me when sitting across and talking with other mental health professionals, like how people ended up where they are, like where they started, where they are now how, especially for us psychologists that have to do research, you know, what you thought you were going to research versus what you ended up researching, or did you just kind of join a lab and then you found it so interesting and fell in love with it. So I appreciate you sharing all that. Yeah, it was a wild ride. Uh, The cool thing too, about that particular research was it ended up being very applied. So we got to do a lot of prevention work, like going out into the lower socioeconomic status zip codes in the area I was at in Florida and do a lot of prevention, giving a lot of wellness, like legit Mm -hmm. wellness information and education because the research had shown by, which is awful by time that black women are pregnant, it's, it's done. It's done basically. And so there's a focus on preconception. So even before becoming pregnant, really trying to instill that. So that was so cool because normally you're just collecting numbers from a database or maybe you're interviewing people directly. But this was really cool because we actually got to get our hands on the, you know, boots on the ground, so to speak. We got to get out in the community and, and meet with people. And yeah, when I was in my PhD program working on dissertation, I thought, I think at the beginning that I was going to do something related to law enforcement. And then uh, my program actually inspired my <laughs> research topic. So the, especially with counseling psychologists, because I won't get on a, you know, a big thing about this, but there are very few differences really between clinical and counseling mm-hmm. psychologists, but we tend to be, I'm counseling even though I work heavily with clinical psychologists, they both annoy me in opposite ways. And I both, I respect both of them in opposite ways, but with counseling psychologists, there's this knee jerk reaction of saying, no, 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 I do multiculturally oriented therapy. I'm so socially justice oriented. You would not even believe it. So we don't even need to study how I'm doing because I'm saying all the right things in a very performative way. And it turns out, oh, nope. No, nope, we we do all the same things as everyone else. We just we uh we try to cover our tracks a little bit more. Oh wow. <gasps> okay. Yeah. On brand real life experiences and uh research them. So yeah. Um you just mentioned a few minutes ago like some of the main groups that you've done research with, but when you think of mental health disparities. What are some of the main groups of people that come to mind or that you've seen in clinical practice, that you've researched, et cetera, that really experience mental health disparities? Yeah, I think even defining disparities is probably probably important on my end That's here. True. So these yeah. are these are differences in groups that are preventable. 
So this mm-hmm. is not referring to maybe black patients that are more likely, although importantly, not exclusively more likely to get sickle cell disease. Mm-hmm. That's genetic and actually is adaptive in a way because it helps protect against malaria. It's a important evolutionary trait. Although again, not exclusively, that's not what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. What disparities then would be is that we think then that this black patient who comes in with sickle cell disease, they're drug seeking because of these perceptions that we have. So these are preventable based on a lot of systemic factors. For example, do you have access to healthcare? Do you have access to nutrition, like nutrient foods? Do you have access to transportation? What does your social life look like? All these different things. And also direct impact from providers. So race tends to be the quicker one on my mind, Mm -hmm. just because I'm more oriented to that because of the research side of things. I also am a cisgender woman. I have lots of cisgender women clients and there's lots of data to support that they have difficulty navigating, especially on the medical side. But I think these are our systems aligned and they overlap. Mm -hmm. Also, queer clients. So I mean, everyone under the umbrella for different reasons. So for example, maybe assuming that if, a client who's lesbian comes in, not asking them about like what sexual health looks like, what, what does their relationship look like? Things like that. It could be overly screening gay clients coming in about their, like their sexual health Mm -hmm. practices, for example, or labeling people as hypersexual or promiscuous, um, things like that. Also, people with chronic health concerns and chronic pain can be, that can be really challenging to navigate any system. And then providers often feel frustrated or they feel stuck and that becomes a mess. And so disparities, unfortunately, are reinforced and nurtured on the medical and mental health side. I think more so on the medical side too, because we have a strained healthcare system. You have a limited time to meet with people. And disparities often are a result if we're, if it's our own biases coming into play because our brains are super efficient and that's great most of the time. If they weren't, we would probably not exist anymore, I would have ventured to say. But the consequence is we sacrifice complexity for that or we sacrifice accuracy. And so you pluck a patient in in front of a provider who is absolutely overworked, overbooked, under-resourced. And that is like prime breeding ground for biases that can come into play. In addition to the things that were already there that are outside of the provider's control, like no one can individually fix these systemic issues. Like if you don't have access to healthcare insurance, or if you do, you're in a place where they're aren't high quality facilities to be able to provide you the care that, that you really need in addition to nutrition, high stress, all of those different things. And, you know, it's highlighted from, I mean, there are so many public health professionals that compare the lifespan from two different zip codes in the same city. And you might see it quite literally like a 10 year gap in mm-hmm. lifespan and life expectancy, even though they're in the same city. So that would be like the macro level of disparities. And I keep that in mind. But obviously, when I'm meeting with patients, and I'm training people, it's also 
we can't let ourselves off the hook because I think we do that too. We put everything on these systemic kind of abstract Mm -hmm. things, not realizing we might actively contribute to that ourselves. Absolutely. You just name so many great things. Um, I don't even know where to start, but no, like, and as you were talking, I mean, you talked about race, um, even cisgender women, queer, chronic illness, like all of these things. And really what's come to mind, like, and I'm making a broad statement so you can correct me if I'm wrong. Anyone that really holds a marginalized status, at least in the United States, probably experiences some type of health, healthcare, mental health disparity, whether it's well-researched or not. A hundred percent. And you're right that there are some that are definitely not, definitely not researched enough yeah. at all. And there's also a misunderstanding, I I think, too, that it's their providers will become defensive as many people do when racism comes out or any of the isms, because we know that that means that that's bad and we don't want to be associated with that. We're social creatures. So we might, that social desirability piece might get kind of ticked right there. And so we don't want to be associated with that. Even back home, people throw around the most awful racial slurs. And I would say, Hey, that's kind of racist. And they would say, oh, no, it isn't. And I'm like, okay, wait a minute. What what does racism mean to you? And I think we're still used to the, I don't know, don't get me started on Mississippi. I don't know. I think we're still used to the, there's like an active, volatile hatred toward a particular group. And that can still happen. Clearly, the example I just gave. That negates some newer research that shows that it's less sometimes less about that and more this quiet insidious implicit preference for my own group so it's more mm-hmm. out of neglect like on the medical side which more clear cut example i know we're talking about mental health but undeniably like if we have you and i are pretty fair skin yeah if we get rocky mountain spotted fever and we go to the doctor and they see that rash boom immediately there's no question. You can see yeah. everything. I think I'm wider than you are. Like you can see everything on here. I could never be a UFC fighter because my God, like one touch I'm done. Yeah. But if you have someone with darker skin coming in, they are much more likely to be missed. And is that mm-hmm. because the doctors hate the black patient? No. I mean, it could be, I don't want to rule yeah. that out of course, but it's, it's because this trickle down effect when they were mm-hmm. looking at the diagrams and their textbooks, what does the skin white. tone look like? It looks white. white. Yeah. Easy, easy, easily identifiable. And does that mean that the book authors hate black patients? Probably. I mean, maybe, but mm-hmm. it also could be it's because they're white and they're just in their mind thinking, oh, this is the default or this is the easiest. And we start mm-hmm. there. And then the supervisors on site, boots on the ground, kind of the same way. And so it becomes this trickle down effect. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing with Hoffman and colleagues released this study in 2016. You probably heard of it. It was a huge. So they had people look at these very false statements about black people, about black Mm -hmm. patients. So black patients have a higher pain tolerance. They have a thicker skin, literally not. I'm less sensitive, but quite literally. Yeah. Thicker skin. And they did it in two different studies. Importantly, the second study was medical students, which means they were already accepted into medical school. Mm -hmm. 50% of them endorsed 
these big myths, including that black patients have a higher pain tolerance. And there's no other explanation for that than it being trickled down intergenerationally from slavery. And so, and there's no, there's no, there's nothing supporting that. And so that that's on the empirical side. When I worked in the suckle cell clinic, I saw that all the time. Mm -hmm. Immediately they turn 16, they go into a pain crisis. It's really painful. The only thing, at least when I worked there, that would work in certain cases is you have to give them our narcotics or opioids. Narcotics. Like that's mm-hmm. the only thing. Yep. And as soon as they hit 16 ish, weirdly, the ER doctors are thinking, oh, they're med seeking. Oh, like it can't be that painful. It can't. And so there's this defensiveness and distance coming in. And so it was shocking. I mean, I think the first study was general population. And I think mm-hmm. it was around 75% endorsed, which yes, that is shocking. Mm-hmm. How horrifying is it? that 50% of the medical students endorsed these beliefs that are not based on, they were accepted in medical school. These aren't freshmen undergrads. They're in medical school. And it was a groundbreaking study because there's no other reason that they would endorse these myths besides these insidious kind of things coming into Mm -hmm. play. And they may mean well, it kind of doesn't matter though. It's like Rocky Mountain spotted fever. Like the doctor could be trying their best, but I'm sorry if you and I get treatment a black yep. patient dies because they didn't get the treatment. So it, it, the intent kind of doesn't really matter in that case, like at the end of the oh, day. Yeah. So I'll hop off my soapbox, but just to kind of illustrate very clear cut. And it's the same thing in our field. Black mm-hmm. clients are less likely to get like adequate substance use care that really yep. feels culturally sensitive. We're still decades later, more likely disproportionately to diagnose psychotic disorders. So like schizophrenia and black patients less likely to diagnose depression because it may not look like your typical, what was that? The Zoloft commercial with like little sad bouncy circle that, (laughs) that went around. So it doesn't look, it doesn't look like this stereotype representativeness heuristic comes in Mm -hmm. where we have this idea of what this group or this thing looks like. And if it doesn't look like that, it's harder for us to kind of go against that. Mm-hmm. There are lots of different kind of heuristics that come into play or errors, these shortcuts that our brains make, which are normally benign. But in cases where we're, you know, we have the power to affect other people's lives, Absolutely. those can have huge consequences. There's a lot of sexism, of course, gender bias in diagnosis of borderline personality disorder among women yep. versus, you know, narcissistic personality disorder diagnosed in men. Women not even really being screening as much as they should for premenstrual dysphoric disorder because mm-hmm. ew, periods are icky. We don't talk about that. You know, all, yeah. all kinds of things where trans clients are much more likely to be exposed to transphobic language, really gay clients, lesbian clients, much more likely to run into things too. Bisexual clients also are kind of just me and I had time on my hands. So this woman comes in and she had been there several times before they were pretty familiar with her. And I just, they had said, Oh, she has bipolar disorder. And immediately I'm pretty suspicious per usual about that because we just slap <laughs> that absolutely on everything. Yeah. And I had the time to go through her chart and my spidey senses were tingling. And I'm just like, this doesn't sound like 
Okay. But like, what is this? Then you're in an awkward position on an inpatient unit because you have limited time. You really can't really diagnose a whole lot. So I empathize with the slapping the label. I think bipolar disorder is a big one. Those medications do not come without side effects. So, mm-hmm. uh, so I go through our whole chart and it was like in the nineties, it was the nineties and I'm going through her chart because I had the time. And now I'm like a dog with a scent and I'm going down and I'm like, where did this come from? That was the nice part about being in that system is I can go through all the records. The problem is you generally don't have time, but I was a trainee. So I did. So I go through and it was like in the nineties when she got the diagnosis. And I just saw in the description, here's an example of how the disparities show up in our documentation, which is another way that we can advocate because you're going to influence the next provider's opinion Mm -hmm. before they even meet with a patient. The patient. Yeah. She was diagnosed with bipolar disorder mania actually, because she came in and she was wearing, this is under the objective part of the note, by the way, quote, excessive jewelry. And I'm like, (laughs) under objective. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How does one even define excessive jewelry? I would love to know because how many necklaces am I allowed to wear before I'm manic? Like, I just need to know for me, am I bipolar? Like, am I bipolar? Because what? I, uh, it was fine. but no, but that, that's a really good point about like the charts, because I see that all the time working in the hospital. I mean, you worked in VA, but I work in a different system. If something gets put in a chart once, especially yeah. now, since we have electronic medical records, it will always get pulled forward if it is on your problem list. So if you had an inpatient stay, in the 90s, so even if there was like paper records, because I've seen this too, where like before we, I work with kids, obviously. So a parent will report when their kid was, you know, six, they got diagnosed with ODD and now they're 16. And that diagnosis has carried with them because mom mentioned it one time to one provider and now it's getting carried through. So same with this individual in the 90s got diagnosed with bipolar disorder based off excess to anybody listening that's not in the mental health field excessive jewelry is not a criteria for mania in case anybody was confused about that and then that just gets carried forward and people don't dig and challenge and part of it is lack of time which you know that's not an excuse by any means but I've seen that so much I've seen that with especially more behavioral things mm-hmm. bipolar I see it a lot I mean I've seen it with like autism before yeah that kids that maybe were really anxious or uh maybe went through a lot of trauma so they didn't make eye contact didn't like were diagnosed as autistic not using any validated measures because of, of course not. Why why, why would no. we do that? And then it's just carried on. And then so people have these labels slapped on them and things like bipolar disorder, ODD, borderline. We know carry certain perceptions mm-hmm. and stigmas. And then every person that knows about their diagnosis is going to interact based on that diagnosis. Yeah, it's it's wild. I had, you mentioned borderline personality disorder. And of course, autism is a hot topic right now, ADHD, Mm -hmm. because there have been disparities gender wise there because Mm -hmm. all the measures for autism, for example, were on cisgender white boys. Boys. Like that's ADHD. Yeah. 
Right, right. Both. Yeah. Yeah. So I, to illustrate another one, I was doing an assessment just really quickly. I was doing an assessment also during training and uh, a differential diagnosis between bipolar disorder and borderline personality disorder and doing the measures, doing all the things. And I needed collateral information. So I go to the nurses that have been working mm-hmm. with her for a really long time. And they're like, no, 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 I know she is. She's bipolar. And I said, okay, what is leading you to that? Right. Yeah. And the best part about our job I think psychologists are uniquely positioned to be able to facilitate some change here mm-hmm. because we know how to ask the right questions. We know how to empathize. We know how to reflect, provide some observations. And so I just kept asking curiously and you were falling down this trail and eventually it got to, Oh, well, she has these moments where she's very hypersexual. And I said, Oh, what is hypersexual? Because inherently that's subjective. So yeah. What is hypersexual? So she's married. And they said, well, she just wants to have more sex with her husband. <laughs> oh, I, my God, a woman wanting to have sex with her husband. We can't have that. That means she is like, she's a hermit. Like we need to medicate her pronto. <laughs> what? Yeah. It happens all the time. I hate the term promiscuous. It's only used. Yeah. With women patients. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and honestly, like even before you defined that, I was like, hypersexuality could be so many things. And it could be like something that meets like pathological clinical criteria, Mm -hmm. or it could just be normal behavior. Right. Like maybe she just is feeling better about herself. Yeah. 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 And for my dissertation, it was unique. So we did qualitative study, but we had to code what was not there, which was really unique. So I interviewed mental health professionals, specifically master's level, but also counseling psychologists. Cause again, we think that we're better than everyone else about these things. And so gave them vignettes that were very, very vague on purpose because I didn't want to tick anything off. So I mentioned mm-hmm. race and one, like you have a black male client comes in, arms are crossed, not really making eye contact. How do you conceptualize or describe your understanding of what's going on? How do you diagnose? And frequently the, and I'm giving them limited time. So to make this realistic of what this looks like, and I'm not get, I'm not priming them as much as possible. Yeah. So there were some important limitations to the study. Don't get me wrong, but we've seen from previous research, even when in our field, a client comes in, a black client comes in, for example, and they specifically mention that they're coming in for racial issues or any cultural issues. Even when they explicitly mention that, mention that we're less likely to follow up. And so mm-hmm. that was apparent in what I what what I did. So either it was it wasn't mentioned at all, or it was very potentially stereotyped that was less frequently. Importantly, though, and I involved this in my training a lot is the body language was interpreted as guarded or resistant. So a lot of the language that we use, like if someone is non-compliant with their treatment plan or they're resistant, if you think the only other time that we use these are when we're talking about legal things. I was about to say like criminal resists arrest. Yes. Yeah. And it implies again, like we know better and you need to go with what we want as opposed to this person might be hesitant 
around mm-hmm. you or they might, who know? Again, there could be so many reasons. And granted, I was kind of cornering them for an answer, but it yeah. was for a reason. So, and, and we've seen that multiple times and that area is still emerging, even with supervision, which is less likely to be talked about in our field too, where supervisees might bring in an issue and it still is not adequately addressed. Mm-hmm. And so even thinking about the language, I don't want to get too obsessive about that to the point where it loses meaning. I think that's a fine line. I get when people critique that, that we get too politically correct. I care about that only in the sense that it just becomes meaningless. But in this case, the language implies something. Mm -hmm. Like you said, it's like, I'm giving you an order and you have to comply with that essentially, instead of it being this collaborative thing. So even if I'm saying, you know, our training plans should be collaborative. Are they though? Like when we look at, you know, each note and how we're interacting with the client. Yeah. yeah. Oh, absolutely. So like you just said, your dissertation um, was on racial, ethnic disparities. You have a lot of clinical and research knowledge. What are some of the racial and ethnic um, disparities that we see in the literature when it comes to mental health disparities? Yeah. So one study, now again, we need this to be replicated because that is a problem in our field for sure. One study, the researchers actually found that private practice therapists were less likely. So on a wait list, like let's say people called and left a message or contacted, and they did a study where they contacted their private practice therapists requesting, you know, more information for therapy. And if the client had what was presumed to be a quote, black name, Mm -hmm. they were less likely to be called back. So even the entry into private practice, yes, it was one study. So again, you need to replicate this, but that's important, obviously concerning, even in this one context, like why, let's say it didn't replicate. Why was this the case in this particular study? Yeah. So even entry in, there's also not just, we're much more likely to diagnose black clients with psychotic disorders, less likely to diagnose them importantly with depression or like mood related Mm -hmm. disorders. For example, black men are less likely kind of going back a little bit to what I said earlier, less likely to look like the just sad, like Zoloft Mm -hmm. commercial. And it might look like withdrawal like more just isolation, Mm -hmm. more kind of shutting down, more numbness, more anger, maybe, but less engagement in the things that they used to engage in. So that's important because however we view our clients, what we call conceptualization, how we make sense of what's going on, how we put these puzzle pieces together, not just goes into documentation that could impact them forever, but also affects treatment. And Mm -hmm. we can very care, like we can very easily cause harm that way. So mm-hmm. even right now, when I work with neurodivergent clients, okay, so someone comes in and maybe they're not sure. And I want to refer them out to get it assessed for mm-hmm. something. I need to know, are we looking at a neurodivergent diagnosis? Are we looking at OCD? Yeah. Are we looking at a personality thing? Because only because I want to make sure that I'm not going to fuck it up worse. And that's yeah. so, so important. Uh, we also know that with black clients, and actually other races too, that if the client explicitly mentions that cultural things are important to them, we don't ask. So we definitely do not ask if those things are not brought up. And so what's more likely yeah. to happen is what, what we call cultural concealment, which means I go in and see a therapist. I'm sussing it out. I don't know if I can trust this person. 
They mm-hmm. don't ask me about cultural things or the most frequent microaggressions that therapists basically engage in is, oh, I don't have any biases and kind of minimize that, or they don't broach these differences. So if Mm -hmm. I'm a client, then I'm not going to feel safe talking about these cultural issues that are really important to me, which ultimately tends to lead to higher rates of dropping out of therapy, what we call unilateral termination. Mm -hmm. Basically your client ghosts you because they didn't feel safe enough to to talk about these things. The other types of microaggressions that come up, not quite as frequently, but some stereotypes potentially at play. Um, I mean, if you've seen The Office and the Diversity Day, fun fact, because I'm an Office fanatic, that was based on one of the writer's real college experiences. And unfortunately, I think that that's actually a lot of our Mm -hmm. experiences, not as dramatically as that, but we do this identity by identity. Like this week, we're going to talk about race. And this week we're going to talk about gender as if there there's no intersectionality. We might throw in a sentence like, well, no, we need to keep that in mind, but that Mm -hmm. leads, we've seen that that leads to stereotypes. So we might see, for example, historically black patients are more likely to get guidance from a church leader that popped up in my dissertation too of, oh, does this, does this client go to church or does this, you know, is that helpful for them? So it's really tricky line of, the research might say this, but at the end of the day, I need to get to know the person correctly. And yeah. so much more likely to drop out of treatment, um, much more likely to conceal really important cultural information, more likely to be, this is less relevant for us, still prescribed antipsychotics, mm-hmm. which is really important because you give antipsychotics to kiddos too, because you want to sedate them. So yeah. when I worked in corrections, Seroquel was fucking everywhere. Why? Mm-hmm. Because it sedates everyone, yep. even if they don't have a, they're not having hallucinations. Yep. Um, so those are huge. So more likely to drop out of treatment with substance use treatment, much more likely to drop out, much more likely to report less helpful, like treatment options, like their issues were not adequately addressed mm-hmm. in that way, less support. And yeah, there's much more of a bias for us to focus on cognitive therapies, which is great for a lot of people. If we are not very careful with that, what that says, according to several authors who have made some really good points, is that if I'm not careful, because it's easy to do any therapy badly, if I'm doing shit cognitive behavioral therapy, I could easily say, challenge. Oh, this is an irrational thought, you know, that you're experiencing racism. Or if you have chronic illness and you do CBT for chronic pain, it's easy to do that horribly wrong of, well, we need to challenge your thought about your pain. I have chronic pain and I very much have told therapists, I would probably punch you in the throat for some of the shit that you've said about your client. So it's really easy then because we're so focused culturally on the individual and individual responsibility that we don't consider. We can, and we should, but these things are not inherently built into a lot of the therapies that we use. And that leads to a lot of problems, especially on the racial side, but also with queer clients, there's a lot of harm that can be done there, obviously, of course, as well. And for neurodivergent clients as well, the modality for therapy, what about your cancellation policy? If you have clients with ADHD, like what does that look like? Or talk therapy requires talking. I see adults, including adults with autism, we make those accommodations for kiddos. 
do we tend to not do those for adults and we're still catching up with adults with autism and how to ag- adequately support them. So there basically there are so many ways that this can pop up. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. And you just mentioned queer clients as well. And I know that's a group of individuals you work with. So I also wanted to give you an opportunity to kind of highlight any of the mental health disparities that LGBTQIA plus folk experience as well. Yeah. So it's this weird paradox where on one hand, people are coming in and we don't ask them questions about their cultural things that are really important. And so they don't feel safe. They're more likely to drop out. But then there's the opposite side where we go with the diversity day situation from the office and we might stereotype. So it happens on the medical side. I think that's where this term came from, but also the mental health side. So let's say I have a trans client come in and it's called the transgender broken arm. For those of you that don't know where they're coming in and it may be directly related to being trans, but it may not be. Maybe they're coming in because it's an adjustment thing. They lost their job or something like Mm -hmm. that. And, or the treatment that they're experiencing from other people. It's easy then to use these cognitive therapies or focus only on the individual. And I mean, at the end of the day, of course, we want to help them transform their lives as much as we can. We can negate those things. And we can't assume that that's why they're, they're coming into therapy. So that came into play more so on the medical side where a trans patient comes in and they have a broken arm and the doctor's like, oh my God, it's because you're transgender. The transgenders are coming in and they have, you know, that's the problem. We need to talk about the hormones. And it's like, uh, yeah, that has nothing to do with my broken arm. I fell off my bike. Yes. <laughs> Whatever. Yes. I was in a car accident. That- like, let's <laughs> focus on that, please. Yeah, I see that with non-monogamous clients too. So that's another area that I specialize in. There's not as much research, but there is some uh, where we do have biases there. So we Mm -hmm. assume that infidelity, we have a lot of assumptions about infidelity, for example. We have a lot of, when someone comes in, we assume that they're monogamous. Or if they're with one partner or another, we may assume they're either less together, how this actually impacts our direct work with patients. So at the time I thought, okay, this is interesting. This isn't relevant. It's stupid. But now that I'm in the field and I follow some of them on X, Twitter, whatever, ResearchGate, all that, I'm like, holy shit, like this would have been so helpful. And and for medical professionals too. So we, mm-hmm. it really needs to be interdisciplinary to kind of help fight these disparities. Absolutely. So I know this next question is going to be dependent on a lot of factors and a big question. But when you think of the individuals, the many individuals we've already talked about, groups of individuals mm-hmm. that face mental health disparities. What are some of the unique challenges and barriers these individuals face that may contribute to the disparities yeah. that we haven't already touched on? Because I guess now that I said that question, we've touched on a lot of yeah. things that contribute I, to the disparities. Yeah. If, so if we take someone with a, let's say a disability, for example, like a physical disability, like maybe they have a chronic illness, even getting in the door. So again, do they have health insurance, which is usually tied to employment in this country? Not always, but navigating Medicaid, Mm -hmm. Medicare is also a nightmare. And so even getting in the door, there's already a ton of manpower hours, even trying to figure out how do I find a provider? Are they in network? Doing and you don't have the energy to do that. Like Mm -hmm. if you have, especially because the reason you're going in, I would assume is because you're having like trouble coping with it. And now you're having to, 
you're going to give more energy to that. So then can you take time off work to go see a mental health professional, a medical professional? Are you paid salary? Do you get paid leave or are you paid hourly? And you're going to take a big fucking hit to even go and see this provider, whether it's on the medical or mental health side, do you have access to transportation? Are you living in a lower socioeconomic status zip code? Do you even have access to nutrition or do you have access to nutrition, but you can't afford it? So they're already all of these things in play. I mean, can you even afford the medications that you're on? I think Hospice Drugs has been phenomenal for that. Mm-hmm. And I'm so excited to see that p- cutting out so many middle people. So that's even <laughs> all of that is happening before they even come in the door, before yeah. they even come in the door. And is it whatever their symptoms are and the day that that appointment is scheduled, how bad are their symptoms that day? And are they coming in person and are they coming in and then they see you? Like, let's say that they've overcome all these other big kind of nebulous systemic hurdles coming in. Let's say they can afford to see you or they're willing to take the financial hit because they have no choice. Or are you in a low cost clinic and you have hundreds Mm-hmm. of clients on your caseload and you cannot give them the time that they need. You're burnt out, which as we know from the research leads to less empathy, understandably. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's hard. quality of services, yeah. all that. Yeah. It's, it's a trickle down effect. So if you go and you see a low cost provider, it's harder to get quality care. Like that provider is not supported in that system either. Mm-hmm. And that trickles down and is also not okay the way that they're treating you. And it is this trickle down effect. So they go in to see you. How bad are the symptoms that day? And then what is the vibe going to be like? Because a lot of times it's going to be a focus on how are you managing your focus on quote, like lifestyle factors. Mm-hmm. So in our field, is it, are we going to focus on behavioral things? How do we, how do we help collaborate with the client to develop a treatment plan for whatever they're mm-hmm. going through on the medication side or medical side. Are we assuming weight has something to do with what they're going through? Like, are we looking for an out? Are we looking for an out because we're so fucking overwhelmed and exhausted and we have nothing left to give that like, that would be an easy out. Like, Oh, okay. Like put it on that. Or is it, I'm a medical doctor. Oh, it's like, it's a mental health problem. You know, that kind of thing on our side. What does that mean? So mm-hmm. They're coming in, they're coming in for therapy or am I expecting to give them a ton of worksheets that they have to complete? Can they even like write some of those things down? Right. Read. Yep. Yeah. Can they remember some, am I assuming their literacy level, the, how, how literally do I need to do some of these interventions? Like, is it actually collaborative in the way that Mm -hmm. this, in this treatment works? Like, let's say we're doing cognitive behavioral therapy am I just focusing on their own thoughts and pacing? Am I including grief in Mm -hmm. there? Like the loss of what changed or what could have been? Am I including then also ableism and internalized Mm -hmm. ableism and this very kind of weird stuck point where some patients are kind of like, oh, I'm disabled if I'm around people that are not. But if I'm around very disabled people, I'm like, oop, I'm not disabled enough. And like, mm-hmm. how do we leave space for all of that? And are we putting it on them again, over and over and over again? They're coming in and they're frustrated because their pain is really high, or maybe they're nauseous, whatever it is. Do we continually put that back on them of like, well, you're not compliant. You're not doing your homework or, yep. you know, how motivated 
are you really to kind of get through this? And we're kind of viewing the therapy space as the only route to healing. That one comes up a lot. Yeah. No, thank you for all of that. And once again, it goes back to all of these things start before they even hit Mm -hmm. the therapy room. Yeah. Which like, I mean, not every disparity we've talked about, but like so many of the disparities start before they ever even get in to see a mental health professional. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So I guess that leads to the last like big question I'm going to ask you, how can we start working towards lessening the mental health care, mental health disparities that marginalized populations experience? Yeah. Because that's really overwhelming. You know, if you're listening to this episode, you're thinking, what the fuck? Like, this is too, this is too much. So in my one, and I get this question, uh, even with trainees, what can I do? Mm -hmm. So what I think is important is kind of stick with what you're good at. Everyone Mm -hmm. is good at some route of advocacy. For example, I think you and I compliment each other really well on social media you're, as you should be the first line of defense, you're coming in with a good faith interpretation. And you're assuming that the other person is simply ignorant of whatever it is. And they might be, they might be, because that will not be my assumption. And I want to make sure you have that space to, Mm -hmm. in case they are, and they're able to kind of change their mind, you're coming in and are willing to be collaborative, very gentle. If that doesn't work, then I, then you come in because I have a very, Very different. We've done this a few times, clearly. We have. Good cop, bad cop, basically. <laughs> it's, it's good. But I, I think there's so many ways to do it. So I incorporate a lot of humor into mm-hmm. it. And and anytime I do a training, I anytime I'm asking people to do some of those things, which usually involves exercises where it is kind of a little bit of a gotcha, mm-hmm. I'm going to do it too because... I need you to know I'm not in a high horse here and I need you to feel safe that we can talk about these biases that we might all have. So that's very like one-on-one direct training. If you're in any kind of integrated team, even just having that conversation or like that example that I gave with a client that was described as hypersexual, I really asked a lot of questions Mm -hmm. and really trying to, I mean, curiosity is an advantage. Like it is a strength of our field. I think we're trying to get to know the person in front of us. So that goes for anyone that has these biases. We kind of do. And can we do our own thought challenging or Socratic dialogue to figure out like, okay, where, where is that coming from? There's also the indirect routes, like the journal club example that I gave or Mm -hmm. being really, really protective and careful about what you document in your note. And so instead of me saying, adherent or compliant, I might say hesitant instead of those things, or I might, instead of resistant, I don't even know if I'll use guarded because that still kind of implies they're not supposed to be. Mm -hmm. So being really considerate of the language that I use and basically assuming, and the way that I talk about these clients and the way that I write about them is if they're going to see it because they could. And Mm -hmm. And I want that to be transparent. Like if they request their notes, I want it to be very clear about, I would say this to your face and that's Mm -hmm. how, that's how it should be. And Mm -hmm. also be really careful. So I'm not going to slap on a personality disorder, like not at all, unless they've been very carefully assessed. And even then I'm Mm -hmm. still going to be very cautious because I have no, I I cannot trust the provider after me. I mean, I'm kind of basically approach it kind of cynically. Like 
I would love at the next provider reading these notes is considerate and culturally mm-hmm. sensitive, but I'm going to approach it just in case they're not. And I'm going to write out rationales. I'm going to, in the objective part, when we're talking about appearance, things like that, I'm going to be really careful about the way that I describe that person and maybe not put excessive jewelry, for example, I might. <laughs> and so there are all kinds of ways even indirectly, that's mm-hmm. less high stakes than confronting someone and going head to head with them. Yeah. No doubt about it. There are also the bigger systemic pieces that are kind of scary because it's hard mm-hmm. as one person to tackle all that. And I think again, that our own cultural values here where it's very much on the individual, which that's too much pressure. So yeah. if you're getting involved in your own like county or statewide board or association for whatever your field is, there is usually room for advocacy there in Mm -hmm. some way or another, which is really cool. Can you do that if you're in a hospital setting or a, an agency, for example, can you provide a training so you can reach more people? So there's like the one-on-one where it's maybe very meaningful and in depth, or do you want to go the route of like reaching more people, advocating, Mm -hmm. getting involved on the legal side, what are some organizations collaborating with other disciplines, super important and mm-hmm. finding people that are like-minded. The biggest barrier, which I don't have an answer for, and I wish I did is whenever I gave some, whenever I get these trainings and it's the same thing that we keep running into is the people that really need these trainings are the people that are not going to go because yeah. they don't think that they need it. And that yeah. is something that we're still trying to tackle in our field for sure. Mm-hmm. So for me, it's even been a little bit of, it's manipulative, I'll admit it, renaming the training to where it sounds more vague, where we're going to be a little bamboozled here, yep. but this is really important. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is really important. And so if that's going to get you in the door, I'm going to help you walk through this and I'm going to be vulnerable with you because this is scary and it's, we're at risk of feeling shame or guilt or discomfort. Mm-hmm. We got to get through this together. Yeah. But overall, that unfortunately is something we still don't have an answer for is continually on the medical and mental health side. The people that const- that really need this training are the people that don't think they need it. Like one supervisor mm-hmm. telling me like, oh yeah, you really specialize in cultural issues. I don't really specialize in that. And I'm like, no, that everyone has a culture. <laughs> what? Like you may not specialize in a certain yeah. culture, but we should mm. all have cultural awareness. And if we don't have cultural awareness of a client we are working with, it is our job to educate ourselves. And that doesn't mean our client educating ourselves mm-hmm. or educate ourselves and still refer out to somebody that will do less harm, but not yeah. ref- referring out solely because we do- don't want to do the work. I wanted to make right clear because even majority groups also have a culture, culture. like on the culture box on intakes. I don't understand how people leave that blank because I'm like, even if even like the region of the country, Mm -hmm. we've talked to different people. Like there's a huge difference culturally between people in the South and people like in the Northeast. Uh, Yes. As somebody from the Northeast who lives in the South. Yeah. Very different cultures. so much. Like, what was your community culture like? Like, what what were all these different things? And so everyone has, like, these cultural pieces. So for me, that's like, you're not asking about thoughts and emotions, which everyone yeah. has, and you would inherently ask about those things. I think another suggestion that I have for people is, 
looking at a multicultural orientation, there's a big push for that. So mm-hmm. cultural competence is knowledge, skills, mm-hmm. looking at all those things. We kind of ran with that. There's not as much research support for that. And again, we're focusing on trying to make everything measurable, which is tricky yeah. because inherently a good chunk of our, our job can't really be measured. It's about the process. It's more qualitative. And so multicultural orientation is important, especially cultural humility and educating yourself on how to do that, taking CE trainings, maybe suggesting it to like your co your colleagues, your coworkers, your bosses, because then it's less likely to elicit maybe defensiveness too. And just kind of looking at, Hey, this is a supplement. We don't want to get rid of cultural competency, but this is a supplement. It's a way of being when you enter the space. And that gives a guide to actually operate in there because you can easily do the diversity day bullshit be like, Oh, Mm -hmm. I have the knowledge. Uh, Well, uh, yeah, that did not work out great, but thank you for that. So it's a great adjunct to cultural Mm -hmm. competency. And I think it helps take so much pressure off. Like, did I ask, did I check the box off the right questions to ask for? And instead putting you in a space and being very curious about the person and just inviting in, the space. And we know from the research, last thing I'll say is if you engage in cultural humility and there is a rupture with your client, you're much more likely to overcome that rupture Mm -hmm. in the relationship between you and your client, because that's there. We're going to make mistakes. And I think that that's like a, a fear, but you'll have built a safe enough space that you're able to overcome that rupture more likely than not. Yeah. Thank you for adding that at the end. So I know we've covered a ton and I know there's probably a ton more that we could cover, (laughs) but for last thoughts, is there anything I haven't asked you about that you really, really want to touch on? I, I don't think so. I think we get, (laughs) I'm sure, but we covered a lot of ground, I think. Yes, we, no, we did, but I just wanted to make sure in case there was any last thoughts. So if not, the last thing I will ask you is where can people connect with you? Yeah. So I'm more active on Instagram. I just, TikTok gets way too overwhelming for me. So Instagram is probably the best way to follow me because I'm a geriatric millennial. And so my handle is revealing the ivory tower podcast. And so you can see my content on there. It is a podcast temporarily on hiatus because as you know, that's a lot of work Mm -hmm. and it's coming back soon, but I try to share helpful content as you do and you do a great job of doing there's also some spice Mm -hmm. every thursday as you said and then on the weekends we try to add some memes you know a little palette cleanser to kind of round out the whole week so i try to add in some humor where it's not unbelievably boring sorry npr but we're learning things on there Mm -hmm. and a little bit a little bit spice because i mean that's just naturally that's you (laughs) yeah (laughs) that is you 100 percent Well, I will definitely um, link that in the show notes. And Dr. Mack, thank you so much for coming on and talking and sharing so much knowledge. And I know we just really scratched the surface with these health and mental health disparities, but I learned a lot and I know the listeners will learn a lot from you too. So I appreciate your time and knowledge. Oh my God. I'm just going to replay that clip if I'm having a bad day. That just little (laughs) snippet that you gave. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me on, especially because it is such a big topic. It's Mm -hmm. hard to really, we covered so much, but also so little at the same time. So I appreciate 
you giving me the space to talk about this area of my life that I don't really get to talk about a lot. Yeah. Maybe you should talk about it more on Instagram. I'm sure there's some spicy Thursday posts that you could come up with this. Oh, I'm certain. Now yeah. the wheels are turning. Okay. Absolutely. I'll tag you when I do it. <laughs> okay. And thank you, the listeners, for joining for today's episode of Psych Talk, and I will catch you in the next episode. Bye. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Psych Talk. I hope you found so much value. If you loved what you heard or gained some knowledge, I would love for you to take a screenshot, put it on your Instagram stories, and tag me at Jessica Lee PhD. Additionally, I would be honored if you leave a review and five-star rating so I can continue to help this podcast grow. If you are not already, follow me on Instagram and join my Facebook community, Grow Through What You Go Through. Thank you for joining me today, and I cannot wait for you to join me during the next episode. Remember, you are loved, you are worthy, and you are braver than you know.